Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of discussions with entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. Lawyerist supports attorneys building client-centered and future-oriented small law firms through community, content, and coaching, both online and through the Lawyerist Lab and Accelerator. And now, here are the co-authors of The Small Firm Roadmap and your podcast host. I'm Laura Briggs. And I'm Stephanie Everett. And this is episode 308 of the Lawyers Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. In today's episode, Laura is talking with Lars Schmidt about rethinking how we look at HR. Today's podcast is brought to you by Smith.ai, Text Expander, Back Office Betty's, and LawPay. We would not be able to do this show without their support. So stay tuned. We'll tell you a little bit more about them later on. All right, Laura. So today I thought we'd tackle kind of a tough topic. And, you know, maybe some lawyers aren't going to want to hear this because sometimes the truth hurts. But I think it's time we talk about uh, honoring our agreements and saying no to emergencies and fires. Yeah. Or even just rethinking how you define what a real emergency is because emergencies do happen, but it cannot be every time a client needs something or every time the client is defining what an emergency is for you to drop things and totally change up your schedule. Yeah. And so this came up because we've had some folks lately, like just not show up for scheduled meetings or scheduled calls and, or are there really late? And then they always feel like they have this super valid excuse, which is, a client emergency, right? And so I get it. And there are times when there are true client emergencies. I can think of a few kind of crazy ones, but for the most part, I don't know. I want us to first, let's like reframe this. Maybe if this would help everybody, but I've, I've been thinking about this a lot, you know, in the first thing you learn in law school is contracts and what is a contract. And that really is the base of everything we do as lawyers And so if I schedule a meeting with you, I am making an agreement with you. I'm agreeing to show up at a certain time and be present and have this meeting. And you have accepted that agreement. And you also have cleared your schedule to have this meeting. And so maybe if we reframe this as it's not that you're just, you know, blowing someone off, like you're not honoring your agreement. You're breaking a commitment that you made with another person, which is a disservice to them and to yourself. Yeah, this is so important. And it's really easy to get in the bad habit of doing it over and over again. And I know even our team, we have lots of meetings on our calendars. And sometimes that means that we're close to fully booked with talking to other people. And so sometimes it's easy to think like, oh, great, this is one meeting I don't have to go to. This is one thing. But we all need to be better about honoring those commitments, showing up, And in a way, you're really deciding what is important in that moment, right? You're really deciding to let this other thing take precedence over what is a commitment you've already made to somebody else and to yourself and to your firm. And so outside of true emergencies, maybe we can start to work towards not having that happen as much. Yeah. And you you mentioned a great point here is that sometimes, and and maybe especially if you're a solo, like if you don't have a process or a system to handle things as they come up, it might always feel like an emergency. And then you're in a, a world where you're just jumping from fire to fire and you're never really doing the good work and the deep work you need to do. And so can you 
you know, take a moment, step back when that thing pops up, you know, and test, like, is this really a drop everything moment? Because chances are it probably isn't. Yeah. And you still have that ability to leave in your schedule some of the flexibility or need to adapt when a real emergency does come up. But most of the time, it's something that isn't urgent or even if it feels urgent in the moment, it's that reflection time to go, you know what, we really should have a system for this or we should have an autoresponder that deals with these concerns or this is something my admin can deal with when it comes in. So don't just let it be the emergency where you put the fire out in the moment. Look back and see, is there anything we can do within the firm to decrease the chances of this happening again or have a better system in place if it does come up so it's not landing on my desk. And as the attorney or owner of the firm, I have to drop everything and go take a look at it. Yeah. And you know what? Here's the beautiful thing. Like you can train your clients around this too. Like you don't give them this power that they can control you and your schedule this way, right? Because that's what you're really doing. I, I I love when I do my productivity talks and I talk about people who just get up in the morning and start working off their inbox. I'm like, you know, why would you hand your valuable time and agenda to, you know, 400 strangers? But I mean, in a way, that's exactly what you're doing. So instead, during your intake process, you should have a system in place to onboard new clients. And part of that, I think it is the most valuable time in the entire relationship, because it is where you get to set the expectations on both sides. Like, here's how we're going to operate. Here's what this is going to look like. And you get to teach your client, Hey, this is how you connect with me for these various ways. And this is what a true emergency looks like. And this isn't what it looks like. And this is how I respond to you. If you break these agreements, you're creating an agreement with your client upfront about how you want to work together. And the sooner that you have that conversation, the less of a chance that it's going to be a habit that they start taking advantage of. Because if you teach people that they can reach you anytime, all the time, whether or not it's a real emergency, they will follow that away and go, oh, okay, great. Like the next time I have something that I feel is pressing, I can convince this other person that it is too. And it sets a really bad precedent where then all of your clients who have learned that lesson are all constantly in fire and disaster mode contacting you. Exactly. Love it. Now we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Maddie from Smith.ai and then my conversation with Lars. Hey, everyone. This is Zach, the legal tech advisor here at Lawyerist, and I'm here with Maddie Martin from Smith.ai, and we're talking about live chat included on your website today. Maddie, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Zach. Great to be here. So Smith.ai includes virtual receptionists and a multitude of other things, but uh, specifically, we wanted to talk today about live chat interactions coming from a lawyer's website. Absolutely. And live chat is so important because responsiveness is not just a matter of picking up the phone promptly. It's also a matter of being responsive on every channel. So it's being comprehensive in your responsiveness and recognizing that, you know, people who visit your website are not always going to call or complete your contact form. In fact, what we find from actually a study done by GNGF is that 15% of leads are net new 
who wouldn't otherwise call or complete a form uh, when they come through chat. So chat is actually adding substantially more leads to your sales pipeline. And that makes sense when we look at the other data points that show 90% of consumers say that a live chat button gives them confidence that they can get help if they need it. Mm -hmm. It's actually not intrusive. It's actually comforting. And Furthermore, 51% of consumers prefer live chat for multitasking purposes. We see this across every generation, not just millennials. And it's important at this time because when people are at home or even when you're back in an office, there is a need sometimes, especially when contacting a law firm, to have a silent and discreet conversation that can't be overheard for sensitive legal matters and live chat. And also we support text answering, Facebook message answering. That facilitates having a quiet, silent conversation where the message can be communicated without being overheard by parties that you don't want to be privy to that conversation. Well, and so that's very important right now. You know, one, when we're working from home and so, you know, a lot of people are having conversations out in the open with their children, with their their family around. And two, you know, some of us are fortunate enough to be able to be around family during the holidays. And, you know, we're we're being out in the open a little bit more. So being able to do this from directly from somebody's phone might be much more comfortable for them. Exactly. And the, you know, chat works 24-7. It works on desktop. It works on mobile, as I mentioned, text and Facebook as well. What we see is that 25% of leads reach out to businesses, including law firms, after hours. So again, if you prize responsiveness on the phone side, then it's just as important on the web uh, and also through other text-based communication systems. Now, this is English and Spanish. This is staffed by the same fantastic receptionists you've come to associate with Smith AI. And we can handle the screening and scheduling and intake, even taking payments with LawPay and other billing solutions that you're using if you require a payment before a consultation is scheduled. Um, one thing that I'll also mention, though, is that this is a huge SEO opportunity. So, you know, Smith AI is not a marketing agency, but we can actually facilitate better marketing here by helping you review the chat transcripts that come through. And those initial questions from the leads, the reason why they engage with that chat, you know, there's something that's sort of nagging at them and they're not finding it on the website or they just don't have the time to search if there is even a search function on your website, which often there isn't. Those first questions are what you want to find from those Google not provided keywords that they keep so secret, right? Mm -hmm. So the, often what's being searched on Google is what's being typed into your chat widget and you get all those questions that people are typing in on search that you really want to know that you can answer with blog posts and FAQ that deliver value to you to rank better on those organic searches and bring even more business to you. And so not only are you gaining an advantage by being able to say to Google that you're open all the time, but you're also able to kind of mine some data that you're getting and start to cater to the people that are actually looking for you. Absolutely. Attracting better leads is important. And to be clear, this is live chat. This isn't you know, somebody getting connected with a, a chat bot or something that the attorney has to design. This is, uh, you know, the actual receptionist or somebody there 
interacting with these people in a normal way. So it is completely live staffed by our North America-based professionals, and it is also implemented, designed, and installed for you on your website. And we will waive the $150 white glove setup fee for any Lawyers Podcast listeners. Wonderful. Well, Maddie, I understand that you guys have a a special offer going on here uh, for the next little bit. What is that? So we have an incredible offer, which is 50% off your first two months of live website chat from Smith AI with the code chat 50 off to MO. So that's chat five zero off to MO. And that can apply to any plan as low as five chats a month, which is typically just $40. Now it's 20. So it's a total no brainer. Give it a try. There's nothing to lose, but real leads to gain who are high quality and want to work with your law firm. Well, and especially coming into the holiday season where people may want to take a little bit more time off and start to put a little bit more of a load onto virtual receptionists. Maddie, again, as always, thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate your your insight and your input into all of this. Thanks so much for having me. And I will say that deal is good through January 1st, so don't take too long to make your decision. <laughs> Wonderful, thank you. I'm Lars Schmidt. I'm the founder of Amplify and author and podcast host of Redefining HR. Welcome to the show. We are so excited to have you. Um, Let's kick off with what you mean when you say redefining HR. Yeah, you know, the field of HR is, is really a spectrum. And I think that a lot of people, you know, paint HR with a broad brush, and that's not always the most flattering brush. I think it's deeply rooted in kind of our legacy uh, personnel and administrative past. But the reality is there's a a emerging and kind of growing wing of the function of HR and people operations that's much more progressive. It's radically different than those kind of administrative legacy functions. And, you know, that's where I spend all my time. Uh, I interview CHROs and chief people officers, uh, and I write about you know those practices in Fast Company, and my upcoming book really explores what it's like to build modern, progressive people functions. And so, redefining HR is about approaching the, the capabilities and the expectations and the outputs of what that function can do in a very different way than legacies past. Mm-hmm. Where do you think we've gone wrong in the past? Oh wow! Uh, how much? How long? How long is this? Uh, is this show? You know, I think, you know, the the to me the biggest uh, mistake that HR has made, the biggest legacy issue is we were an underdog function, and we were always looking for that you know proverbial seat at the table. And so many kind of legacy oriented HR functions, um, they embraced a command and control structure, meaning they wanted everything to flow through them. They saw that as a pathway to power. So they they over-engineered systems and processes and bureaucracies uh, you know, with the intent of making the function more influential through power and control. And while that may have made them more involved in some of the decision-making, uh, it really pissed off employees and, and leaders. It, it, the idea of creating something that was uh, you know, process for the sake of process, uh, you know, really kind of tarnished that reputation. Uh, I think the, the other element is because much of legacy HR is rooted in compliance, we over-indexed on that side, you know, meaning we were so focused on 
trying to identify what's the worst possible scenario around a particular instance or a use case, and then assuming that everybody's going to do that very worst thing and build policies to safeguard the organization against that thing, rather than assuming that we're hiring adults who are going to make good decisions and uh, you know dealing with bad decisions as they happen, but not you know using that as the as the foundation through which we assume all employee behavior will be oriented. Mm, what does it mean to really build an ecosystem in that sense? You know, does that apply for small businesses too? Yeah. And so uh, contextualize what you mean by ecosystem there. Yeah. So talking about sort of the hiring ecosystem, the culture ecosystem, how you attract and recruit talent, and then also keep that talent. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, that applies to organizations of all sizes, right? I mean, employees, whether you're working for a large company or a small company, you want to have assumed good intent as an employee, you want to have, uh, you know, processes and frameworks that, uh, that that give you some leeway to make decisions on your own and have an impact in that way. You know, you don't want to have every behavior that you're expected to demonstrate, be scripted and conveyed to you, right? That's a stifling environment that uh, is going to make it hard to recruit and certainly hard to retain talent. So, you know, people today want to be empowered. I mean, we see this a lot more, obviously, with all things 2020, uh, more employees are working remotely. They're they're kind of managing their days, uh, you know, in different ways than they did when they were going into an office. And so people want to be trusted. They want to be understood and supported in that way, I think if it, again, if you create too much structure and process, that's going to make it really hard for you to both attract and retain top talent. I like that a lot. In some of your past interviews, you've talked a little bit about HR being at this intersection of culture, talent, and brand. The first two made sense to me. Can you talk a little bit about why brand is important in that conversation? Yeah. So I think when you inject brand into that conversation, it's really talking about how you convey your organization as a place to work, as a destination for talent. So it's it's more than you know, these are our benefits. It's more than, you know, this is the salary. This is our headquarters. It's about how work gets done. It's about inclusion practices. It's about uh, your role as an organization in the communities where you work. You know, people want to know what is, what is my experience going to be like if I work there? And it goes beyond a job description. So I think, you know, brand being woven in, you know, the, the field of employer brand has, you know, matured substantially over the last decade. And, you know, now I think when you look at companies that are really effective at recruiting, they're effective because they're able to help prospects get a sense of what it's like to work there, you know, beyond just, you know, here's a, you know, a static job description with responsibilities and qualifications, but here's a window into the work experience. Here are the kind of people you're going to work with. Here are the kind of problems you're going to solve. You know, that, that, that is where brand gets injected into that equation. Because ultimately, if you do that effectively, you're giving prospects a, uh, a a true view of what it is like to work there. And ultimately, when you do that, it's going to attract the kind of people that are drawn to that environment, and it's going to repel the kind of people that are not. And both of those outcomes are good. So that's why, you know, the, the role of brand is also... Uh, you know, has kind of increased in importance over the last several years. Yeah, I've read a lot of studies about people saying that increasingly it's about culture, it's about the work that they're doing that is less important than pay for a lot of different people. So I'm curious, as a business owner, how do you start that process of being mindful about brand and how employees are thinking about that in deciding whether to work for you? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, pay is absolutely still important. So I don't want to, I don't want to undersell the importance of pay. I mean, that's still, I think, uh, you know, one of the top drivers uh, for potential employees. But it's not the only thing. And I think they want to know that they're going to be doing meaningful work. They're going to be, uh, they're going to have developmental opportunities. They're working in an organization. You know, I, there's a lot of hype around. CSR and organizations and how that's a big driver for, you know, millennials. I mean, there's so many generational stereotypes that uh, we fall into in, in HR. I don't buy into that. I, uh, that's not, you know, I think everybody across generations has similar drivers. There's nuance to each, but you can't kind of paint an entire generation with the same, you know, stereotypes. But I think that when you look at what employees value, it's the work they're going to be doing. It's the people they're going to be doing it with, right? And I think that that, that is a big part of where you know branding has evolved is even five years ago, 10 years ago, companies with an old school approach, um, they didn't want their employees to be found, right? They're, they didn't want their employees to have a great LinkedIn profile. They were afraid that if they did, that other companies would poach them. And so you know they didn't really help them. But that's just backwards thinking. Talent is drawn to talent. People want to work with other great people they can learn from, they can, they can build with. And so especially if you have an organization that has some great talent, the more you can showcase that talent, the more you're going to be able to draw similar talent into the organization. And, and that is a piece that has definitely you know, shifted. And, and I would say both of those mentalities still exist, but it's a great way to kind of determine like, is this a progressive organization or is this an old school organization? Because that that legacy thinking around kind of keeping all of your employees walled off or they might get poached. Talent is fluid anyway. If somebody has a better opportunity and you're not doing enough to retain them, they're going to leave. It doesn't matter whether they're quote unquote findable or not. So uh, I, I think that's that's one of the kind of contrasts between Again, as you talk about redefining HR, kind of legacy thinking and modern thinking. Let's dig into that a little bit. You mentioned that if you're not doing enough to retain the person, they're probably going to leave. So what would you categorize as best practices for doing enough to really make that person feel like they want to stay? Yeah, I, I think so much of this comes down to the relationship between an employee and their manager. So making sure that your managers have effective tools, training, resources, and support to be effective managers, right? Being able to, to check in with their teams, being able to have, you know, ongoing, I think one of the elements that comes into play here is, is performance management. You know, I think the legacy approaches around performance management were an, you know, an annual exercise where once a year, a manager and employee would get together and they would talk about, you know, a retrospective look at the past year. That doesn't work anymore. You've got to have more uh, agile and active and ongoing conversations around goals and performance and blockers and making sure that your employees feel supported and they feel valued. And that, that value comes from, you know, it's not just monetary uh, it, it's, it's understanding like how their work is having an impact in the organization. It's feeling that their boss has a, a truly vested interest in their growth and development uh, as a person, you know, as opposed to just somebody who is producing X for the company. And so I think when you're doing those things, when you really have a culture built around, you know, listening and support and understanding and, and celebrating successes, you know, that tends to make your environment more, you know, what I call sticky. It'll allow you to retain talent in other ways. You know, so many companies view employees as just commodities and maybe they pay them a ton of money, right? And they say, hey, well, we're paying you all this money. Like we shouldn't need to give you these other things. Well, they need these other things. 
And yeah, some people are purely money motivated, but is that necessarily the kind of individual you want to build your organization around? So I I think those are all factors that come into play uh, when you talk about building an environment that helps you retain talent. So many good points. And this is all so crucial to starting or growing your small law firm. We'll be right back after a quick break from our sponsors. Get it right every time. Text Expander makes it easy to give your team the right words for every situation. Whether you need to keep legal happy or delight customers with effective answers, you can rest easy knowing your team has it covered. The latest version of Text Expander even has new and improved statistics reporting for organizations, including the ability to build reports with customizable date ranges for enterprise and individuals, so you can track how much time your team saves. With Text Expander, you can keep your team consistent, accurate, and current, work faster and smarter, keep the whole team communicating efficiently and with consistent language, and share your snippets of messaging, signatures, and descriptions with everyone who works on projects with you. Text Expander is available on Mac, Windows, Chrome, iPhone, and iPad. And Lawyerist Podcast listeners get 20% off their first year by visiting textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more. Support for today's episode comes from Back Office Betty's, the only virtual receptionist service exclusively dedicated to small law firms that offers a plan with unlimited calls. Their highly specialized service boasts customized call handling, relentlessly friendly team members, and unmatched quality. The Bettys are ready to help you grow your firm, even when you're out of the office. Visit backofficebettys.com slash lawyerist to try them out for one week free. Use the promo code podcast to receive $150 off your first month. Trust the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, LawPay, as the ability to accept payments online becomes an increasingly essential part of your practice, LawPay provides your firm with a proven and trusted solution. With LawPay, you receive a simple, secure way to accept client credit cards and e-check payments from anywhere. LawPay understands the unique compliance requirements placed on attorneys, which is why their solution was developed specifically to correctly separate earned and unearned fees and protect IOLTA accounts from any third-party debiting, giving you peace of mind that your transactions are always handled correctly. To learn more or to get started, visit lawpay.com lawyerist today. So one of the earlier things that you mentioned really struck me, and I hadn't yet thought about how pervasive it is. You kind of mentioned there's these generalities that we apply to different generations or even different industries about what they're looking for and what they're not. I feel like I see this everywhere. And so does that fit into this conversation around diversity and inclusion too, like not leaning so much into some of these stereotypes and then driving all of your HR policies that way, because that's the way you've heard it, you know, framed in the media or framed in research. Yeah. Look, I I think that if you, you know, if you're building a people strategy that is um, informed and steered by generational assumptions that you're reading about on Forbes or somewhere else, like that strategy is doomed to fail. Like, I think that there are, there are commonalities. Like people want to be, they want to be compensated. They want to be valued. I think increasingly now, um, you know, flexibility is a huge draw and that's not just for Gen X or millennials or Gen Z, like all employees want to have a bit more flexibility. Like the idea of some of those traditional job constructs around nine to five 2020, if anything, has kind of 
blown that up to an extent. Like many of us are working from home, we're working different hours, we're juggling childcare, uh, you know, so many different things that are that are happening that are radically different than they were in 2019 and before. So, you know, those shifts are for many of us here to stay to some extent. And so views around building uh, inclusive and representative organizations, views around building organizations that uh, you know, maybe are driven by more than just the bottom line. Like th- these are these are things that employees more broadly are interested in, and, and but not necessarily because there are more millennials or Gen Z in the workforce. I think it's more of just societal shifts uh, that have impact our collective thinking that has kind of gotten us there, as opposed to well, now there's less you know baby boomers in the workforce and baby boomers valued X, Y, and Z. And, you know, now that's a smaller part of the workforce. So, you know, we're, we're shifting our thinking in this way. I think it's more of just societal thinking that has shifted that impacts all generations in the workforce. Those are really good points. And I feel like a lot of this was already starting to happen before the pandemic and all of the changes that came in 2020. What do you think all of this means for all of us going forward? Are there other changes or big disruptions that we should kind of be prepared for? Or do you think it's just more about the widespread adoption of more flexible working styles and things like remote offices? Yeah, you know, I think that the, the one thing is I think we're never going back to the way things were in January of 2020. For people who are listening that have that assumption, like, oh, eventually we're going to be beyond the pandemic and it's going to be business as usual. There's no more business as usual. Like that's gone. Like people will have offices again. Um, they will have employees in an office uh, again. So, you know, I'm not trying to paint a picture where everybody has worked from anywhere. That's that's not reality either. But a larger percentage of your workforce in companies that have the ability to have people working from home uh, will be remote. And that's going to also fundamentally change the kind of talent that we can tap into. You're no longer limited to a local geographic talent pool when you have you know hybrid work structures where you have some people in an office and some people working in different cities. You know, and some people may be working from anywhere. It broadens your ability to bring in great talent, uh, more representative talent, right? You may be in a, in a market that, uh, you know, lean towards one demographic or another. When you have hybrid work structures and you can bring people in anywhere, you can be much more successful in making sure that you have an inclusive and representative organization. So um, I think that part is here to stay. I think employees, uh, you know, some of the kind of macro thinking that's been evolved in this is I think we think about mental health differently after 2020 uh, that we did. And that trend was already starting to move in progressive HR organizations. Lots of companies began investing in um, health benefits around, you know, mental health support and mindfulness and counseling. And, uh, you know, I think 2020 has shined a brighter spotlight on the need for that. And so I think that the way we think about benefits and supporting our employees is changed and will remain that way uh, as we kind of, you know, move beyond the pandemic. So, um, you know, there's not a specific thing where we need to say like, this is a seismic thing that isn't on our radar today, but will be one year from now. But I do think that a lot of these things that we've adapted and adopted over the course of 2020 will be remaining, even if not to the full extent they are this year, a version of this will still be, uh, you know, part of how we operate moving forward. I love all of that. Now, do we translate the existing recruitment and hiring process 
directly over if you're now doing it remote or if you're more open to the idea of using flexible talent like freelancers or hiring people in other locations, even if you might still have a home office. Are there things we need to be mindful of going forward with recruiting and hiring that maybe we wouldn't have thought about? Like, I'm just wondering how much does the existing process like transfer over, if at all? Yeah, I mean, elements do, but certainly not identically the way we did things when we were co-located in an office. Like for one, the office amenities aren't really that important for people that are, you know, not going to be spending much time in your office. So, you know, maybe you've got a amazing headquarters. Um, that's not really going to be a selling point to somebody who's not going to be based in your city. So I think companies that, uh, you know, from a recruiting perspective, companies that can do a better job of conveying what work is like for them now and moving forward, right? So, you know, we, we shifted to remote after the pandemic or we shifted to do a hybrid model. This is how work gets done. This is how we operate. We have people across these different countries, time zones, et cetera. Here's a standing meeting we do every week to make sure everybody's aligned. We use, you know, Slack or whatever communications tool to keep everybody informed. Like I think recruiting now will have to do a better job of conveying what their, you know, current and post-pandemic reality is for their operating rhythms of the business. I think that'll be really important. So prospects get a clear understanding of what, what they can expect if they're working there. Um, so I think that's certainly, uh, you know, one element of how things will change, you know, onboarding, we've got to think differently about onboarding, you know, when we have people, uh, you know, showing up on day one in your headquarters, and you can schedule lunches and meetings and things like that. That's great. What do you do when they're remote? You have to adapt, you know, how you think about onboarding. And then the last piece is you also really have to be intentional around how you communicate. I think in the early days of the pandemic, most companies that had an office and moved to remote, you know, they basically just, you know, ported all of their corporate communication cadences, rhythms, rituals, et cetera, you know, to a remote version of that system that was designed for an in-office experience. I think if companies are moving forward and they're going to remain, you know, fully remote, or I think most companies will actually be hybrid once it's safe to go back into offices. It'll have some people in an office, it'll have some people uh, not in an office. So it'll be more of a hybrid structure. They have to think about, do they want to build their operating rhythms for remote? And in that case, it's an even kind of playing field for all employees, or are they going to go back to kind of having an orientation towards a corporate in-office operating structure and then have people who happen to be remote have to adapt to that, in which case, you know, they're kind of another category of employee. They're disadvantaged a little bit to the people who do come into an office. So I think those are the kinds of conversations and decisions that companies need to make uh, when they figure out, you know, how they will be adjusting to do, whether they'll be kind of uh, hybrid, remote, fully distributed, et cetera. Thank you so much. This has been a really interesting interview to rethink a topic that it's very easy to think isn't at the core of your business, but it really is. Can you tell us a little bit more about where people can go to learn more about your work? Yeah. So uh, Redefining HR is the, the name of my podcast and my book. So you can uh, find links there to past shows. Most of my, the podcast is mostly oriented around interviewing CEOs and uh, CHROs and chief people officers who are building kind of next generation progressive people, teams and capabilities. So for you know listeners that are interested in learning more about that, the podcast is great for that. Uh, the Redefining HR book is really a, a deep dive into how you build a modern people function from the ground up. And so it talks about a lot of the foundational elements of modern HR from 
people analytics to diversity, inclusion, and belonging and to employee experience uh, and remote and distributed, obviously. Uh, you can't have a book coming out now without talking about that. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, you can learn more about me as well. Uh, my website is amplifytalent.com and you can learn more about my uh, consulting and HR executive search services there. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Laura. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced by Bailey Tiller and edited by Christopher Eng. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discuss here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Here are your first two steps. First, if you haven't read The Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free at lawyerist.com book. Looking for help beyond the book? Let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyerist.com community lab to schedule a 15-minute call with our community manager. The views expressed by their participants are their own and not endorsed by the Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. Mm-hmm.